Welcome to the Stull Community of Faith podcast. May you be blessed as you listen to our Sunday scripture and message by Pastor Kyle Scheidemann. Our scripture this morning comes to us from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. And this is a continuation of um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mound that we, that we studied last week. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give it light and give its light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, everyone who sets aside one of the least of their commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whomever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will, be certainly, not, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mark. And again, may the Lord bless the reading of this word. And now may the words of my mouth, but the meditations that are received from all of our hearts, be acceptable to you, O Lord, our God and our Creator, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, drive away the chaff that the kernels left behind might truly nourish us. And we ask this in the peace and hope of the Gospels. Amen. Well, you have come today, um, as you regularly do, to worship God. And so we, we thank those that have, are going to be joining us on our, our podcast, and, and uh, we pray for you that are, are listening to our, our message today. And also, you've come today to, to hear the reading of the scripture that Mark just read. We've been singing songs of praise. And we're here today to be reassured by the presence of our neighbors. But you may, there may be an additional reason why some of you have come today. One that you may or may not be aware of. Curiosity. You might have been thinking, hmm, I wonder what hymns we're going to sing today. Are they going to be the old standards the church has been singing for a thousand years? Or I wonder, will the preacher or Mary, maybe Mary, have us sing one that has been written after World War II? I wonder. And maybe more than that, you will wonder, I wonder what the sermon is going to be about today. Have some of the events of the past week, have they maybe colored the the preacher's interpretation of the scripture that's been selected for today? But more importantly, what can the preacher say 
that is going to make a difference in my life. And you should also be aware that I have come today to worship God, to pray right out loud, to sing praises, to also hear the reading of the scripture, and to be reassured by my neighbor. And I have also come with questions. If I try to sneak a new hymn in here, do you think they'll attempt to sing it? Or maybe they'll look up the hymn number in an old hymnal and realize it hasn't been one that they haven't sung since kindergarten and close the book. Nope, not going to try this one, preacher. Try again. But the deeper questions are, what does the gathered community of faith, what you have named the church after, the community of faith, what does it expect to hear from me today? How can I best communicate to those who have come to God's church here, according to the Big 12, basketball is the very center of the world, in the sunflower state of Kansas, the greatest good news that has ever been told anywhere, anytime. You know, I must also confess, like that every preacher who will be honest about it, I have a very basic human need for acceptance and fulfillment. And because of that need, I have to fight the terrible temptation of somehow trying to impress you so that when you leave God's house, you're saying, well, I'm telling you, you know, that Kyle may not be very good about anything else, but he sure can preach, you know. <laughs> I just said that. Like I heard that. <laughs> oh, you know, compliments do have a way of overinflating the ego, you know. But every time I start to feel smug or maybe overconfident, I remember a story a friend of mine told me, and I'm gonna customize it a little bit this morning, and I'm gonna tell it to you. You see, I dreamed that several members of the congregation and I arrived at the pearly gates all about the same time. And so St. Peter, of course, was there, and he said, now he said, you're gonna to have to wait at the gate until our transportation arrives. And he said that each of us would be getting in heaven in a style that is related to the way that we lived on earth. Well, after a few minutes, here came a citation jet. I could have used Lear, but citation's made in Kansas, so you know, I want to use it. But it's a citation jet. It lands. And it was one of those fancy corporate models. And the door opened, and we could see in, and that, that thing was equipped with everything you could imagine. I think it even served you a snack at halftime. It had everything, all the latest avionics. It was a beautiful, beautiful plane. And there was a full staff of people waiting to serve the lucky occupant. Well, I started to head toward the plane, but then St. Peter said, okay, Adele, here's your ride. Oops. <laughs> well, needs to say, I was a little disappointed, 
But just then, here comes this big Greyhound-style bus. You know the, the one that all the country and western stars travel around in? And it rolled up there, and the doors opened, and man, we could see up inside that bus, and it was just as well-equipped as the plane had been. And there were attendants on that bus also, and just waiting to serve the rider. And I had just about decided that I liked that bus just about as well as I did the plane, when St. Peter called out and said, here's your transportation, Ira. Okay. And I was trying to be understanding when a golden stretch limousine pulled up and it was the most beautiful automobile I had ever seen. And the driver got out and he walked around, he opened up the door and we could see inside this luxurious interior. And I thought, yeah, <laughs> this'll be all right. But then St. Peter said, climb on in, Wendell. Okay. Well, I noticed that the modes of transportation were getting smaller all the time. And there I was the only one left. And I thought, well, you know, uh, I like motorcycles. And so, so if this big, shiny, new Harley-Davidson with enough chrome to dazzle the eyes of the angels pulls up, well, <laughs> that'll be okay. I wouldn't mind that either. But then St. Peter walked over to me, and he handed me a pair of roller skates. And then he looked down his list, kind of shook his head a little absentmindedly, and he took one of the skates back. You know, preachers are no better and no worse most of the time than anybody else. But there is always that temptation to let my light shine for the glory of me instead for the glory of God. And that temptation is not a new problem for preachers, and nor is it isolated to this pulpit. One of the first preachers of the Christian church, the Apostle Paul, he had to deal with it also. So listen to the words that, that, that Paul wrote to the, the church at Corinth. We find this in Corinthians, the second chapter. He said, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, at, at, uh, at the church of Corinth, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit of power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, anyone who will stand before the gathered community of faith and say, I did not come to you preaching lofty words of wisdom, has most likely tried to do exactly that at one time or another and realized how wrong it was. The one who proclaims from the pulpit, I decided to know nothing, nothing, nothing 
among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified, has most likely tried all of the gloss and the glitter and the cute little gimmicks and found that none of these, none of these things satisfy the burning desire to speak God's truth in love. Paul had learned probably the hard way that God really does use earthen vessels. He used crackpots. He used those whose knees knocked, those whose stomachs churn, those who despair over ever finding the right words to say to hurting and hopeful people, who preach every Sunday in weakness and in fear and in great trembling. And Paul had learned, as most preachers eventually do, that it's not the eloquence of the person of the pulpit that counts, nor is it a confident manner, a flair for the dramatic or, or uh, innovative insights into human nature. It isn't any of these things. But rather it is the power and the promise of God to whom the preacher must bear witness in weakness and in fear and in trembling. John the Baptist who was another preacher, said of Jesus, said he must increase and I must decrease. If that was true for John the Baptist, it is true for every prophet, every preacher who has come along since then. The preacher has to rely on the power of God to make his or her pulpit ramblings make sense and touch lives, not on lofty words or human wisdom. Every once in a while, I have someone who will say to me, so, well, Kyle, I, you know, I don't see how you do it. How do you stand in front of, of all those people week after week and preach? He said, if, if that were me, I'd be scared to death. And my usual reply is what makes you think I'm not. One of the great things about standing behind a pulpit is you can't see my knee shaking. If ever the day comes when the prospect of being the spokesman for God to the gathered faith community does not make me nervous and fearful, I know that something is dreadfully wrong with me. One of my favorite Ziggy cartoons, if you're into watching Ziggy, Ziggy, Ziggy is lying down on a psychiatrist's couch admitting lately I've been having delusions of adequacy. And I thought, how appropriate that is for ministry. The great preacher and teacher Phillips Brooks once warned preachers never to feel equal to their task as a way of reminding us that God works in and through our weaknesses and even more than our strengths. You know, a Dale Carnegie course does not prepare anyone for delivering sermons. Only confession. And the grace and forgiveness of God can do that. I know that everyone enjoys a well-delivered, witty discourse. It's fun to be entertained. And I certainly don't want to be anyone's cure for insomnia. But God knows that I want to look forward <coughs> to coming to church. But if all I did eat did week after week was provide you with entertainment, you'd get tired of it pretty soon. And week after week you would go away spiritually hungry 
because all you would be getting is baby food. And the only way any preacher can be a blessing to those who gather for worship week after week is by challenging the congregation to examine what it is they believe and why they believe it. And by lifting high the, the cross of Christ and proclaiming in as many different variations of the thing as possible, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if I don't do that, I have failed you. And I have failed the calling. But more importantly, you failed the person that placed me here. The sermon might be entertaining on any given Sunday, or it might not. But that's not what the preacher is here for. In weakness and in fear and in trembling, the preacher steps to the pulpit to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. And friends, that is an awesome task, but no one must take it lightly. But the fear and trembling should not be confined to the pulpit. You who sit in, in those hard chairs, but hopefully padded pews before long, also have reason to be afraid. Paul spoke of the preachers, but when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, you are a city on the hill, you are the light of the world, he wasn't talking about the preachers. Oh no, <laughs> you, don't get, you don't get off that easy. When Jesus said, he was, said that, he was looking at each of you. Jesus is addressing the whole family of God as being the salt and the light. And notice Jesus did not say, you have the potential for being salt or you ought to be the light of the world. No, he said, you are salt. You are the light of the world. And here you thought I was only going to step on my own toes today. Think about it. You are the light of the world. And you have been called salty before, but that's a whole different thing. We are the light of the world. We brighten the world. And if we don't do it, the world will remain dark. We have the awesome responsibility of guiding our folks to Jesus Christ. And if we don't do it, they may remain lost forever. Where we refuse to let our light shine, darkness will rule. Salt and light were precious commodities in Jesus' day. In fact, Roman soldiers received a part of their pay in salt. That's where the English word salary comes from. And it seems to me that there is another word to use in the church that comes from that of a Latin root. And I'll think of it eventually, I suppose. But at any rate, being compared to salt and light is high praise. But Jesus also issues a warning. Lest we allow his praise to overflate our ego, Jesus says that salt can lose its flavor and become worthless. In this day, salt from the Dead Sea was literally mixed with other elements to make it last longer. 
and when this mixture was exposed to the weather, the pure salt would filter out, separating it from the worthless chemical residue, and then it was fit for nothing. And so we as Christians, we are, are the salt of the earth. We become guilty of moral compromise. We lose our flavor. The secular world can dilute our moral influence and even creep into our church, rendering us powerless to bring about constructive change to our society. And then we are transformed to, into a light church, and that's L-I-T-E, not L-I-G-H-T. The church of the seven and a half percent tie, the church of the six commandments, you get to pick which ones you want. You know, it's just too hard to keep up with all 10 of them. And of course, our ability to influence society for good. You don't have to be a Dale Carnegie graduate or Zig Ziglar, Tony Robbins, Dave Ramsey, Joel Osteen, or even Adam Hamilton to deliver an invitation to your neighbor to come to church. You can do it faithfully in weakness and in fear and trembling. You don't have to comfortably be sure of what to say in order to visit a fellow church member who is homebound or hospitalized. You can do it in weakness and in trembling. You don't have to be financially secure, guarantee you a sufficient income for the rest of your life to be a steward of, of who gives faithfully to the church. You can offer your gift in weakness and in fear and in trembling. You don't even have to be sure of the strength of your own faith to begin to, prepare, to pre begin to pray regularly for others. You can stumble over the words, praying in weakness and in fear and trembling. That's okay, I do it every week. And if you do, and when you do, you will find not that you have miraculously done anything perfectly, amazing anyone with your ability and your creativity. No, you will find just as I do that Jesus has been right there with you all through it. And somehow the words you stumbled over, the, the awkward consolations, the wavering words of love and the rambling, fumbling sermon, it touched somebody else's heart. Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. He offers encouragement to let your light shine as we reach out into the good news. Now, I don't know what shape that reaching out will do for you this coming week or what specific opportunities God will place in front of you or to whom God will lead to minister. But my prayer for each of you today is that you will endeavor to be the salt and light to those around you that you will not do so with absolute self-assurance and unshakable confidence, but in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Because then by the grace and the power of God, something will happen in the lives of those that you touch. And that something has to do with a word I pretended to search for another. And that word we so often hear and we use in the church, the word that has its roots in the Latin word for salt, that word is salvation. And salvation comes not through hearing a well-worded sermon. 
and not being entertained by it, but through Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so as you partake of Holy Communion this morning, which is, by the way, open to anybody that wants to receive it, may you remember your baptism. May you feel the Holy Spirit touching down upon you, and may you be nourished by the body and the blood of Jesus, that you may serve more completely, feed more heartily, and love more deeply. Now and forever. Amen.